Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I have today uh, the pleasure of interviewing Judith Brett. She's the Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University and an award-winning biographer. Her books include Robert Menzies' Forgotten People and, more recently, The Enigmatic Mr Deacon, which won the 2018 National Biography Award. Judith, welcome to Published or Not. Thank you for having me. A very prescient uh, author. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, It's no accident with the election around here. This is why we wanted Judith on around this time. But just to open with the questions, Judith, democracy has had some bad press in recent times. Does your book offer some good press for democracy? Yes, well, the book, um, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, Why Australia's Got Compulsory Voting, uh, is really argues that Australians have been particularly good at working out the rules for running elections so that the most people possible participate. And so, you know, we get outcomes that the majority support. And that's an important difference from America, isn't it? They can have people elected who are elected from a minority of the population. Yeah, well, I think that's always the case where you've got voluntary voting because um, you get, you know, obviously the majority of the people who vote participate, you know, affect the result, but you don't have all of the electorate turning out. So that's a really big difference. But we've got other ones like preferential voting rather than first-past-the-post, which is another difference from... Well, from America, like, in, for example, if Ralph Nader hadn't have run uh, when George Bush and Al Gore were facing off, um, Al Gore would have won because, you know, it was a, 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 he, he took a lot of the sort of more progressive vote, whereas we have a system with preferential voting where you can afford to vote against, you know, you don't, you, you don't have the same risk of vote splitting. And the way that we vote now, this is part of a long evolution, if you like. And I was intrigued to find out the first part of the title of your book, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage. From secret ballot, why is... I mean, I've just taken secret ballot voting for granted, as I'm sure most voters have in Australia. But it's also known uh, outside of Australia as the Australian ballot. Why is it known as that? Well, the secret ballot was actually introduced in America before... The situation before there was the secret ballot was that a person voting would go up to a returning officer and say in a loud voice who they were voting for. That meant that they could be bribed, they could be intimidated, mm-hmm. that if they were a tenant farmer, their landlord could um, decide, you know, could bully them. So um, the Americans introduced a secret ballot where what people did was they brought along written on a piece of paper who they were voting for and they handed that to the returning officer. Now, the political parties soon got onto that and so they distributed the little slips to people and they were in different colours. So it was still possible to see who you voted for because they were still doing treating, as it was called, which was buying alcohol for people. <laughs> the early form of pork yeah, barreling. That, that's right. <laughs> well, sort of pork barreling of individuals, really. Um, so... What the Australians did, and it was done, invented in South Australia and Victoria at about the same time, is they worked out a way of making the secret ballot much more practicable. And this involved, instead of you bringing along a piece of paper, 
you turned up at the polling booth and the returning officer gave you a piece of paper, a ballot paper like we're now all used to with the names of the candidates written on them and you, well, initially what you did was you crossed out the people you didn't want. So that was the first innovation, if you like, that we're responsible for, that you packed the ballot paper. And then the second was, well, actually it was going to take a while for people to do all this crossing out, particularly in the days of dipping pens. So some bright body, it was a Victorian, came up with the idea of the compartmentalised polling booth so that a number of people could be voting at the same time and there would be screens so they wouldn't be able to read what the other person was doing. And so that's what became known as the Australian ballot, the the compartmentalised polling booth and the ballot paper. So one electoral officer could have, you know, four, five or ten people voting all at That's once, right. taking their time, dipping their uh, ink in the well, if you like. And, I think and then it, they found yeah. out that that was too slow, so they introduced yeah. the pencil. The pencil. <laughs> and that still holds today. That's right. That it's only a pencil that has to be supplied, but you can actually use a pen in the polling booth, but the uh, Commonwealth Government is only supplying a pencil. Tied on with a piece of string. Oh, yes. So you can't take it home with you. Oh, you hope they can't, but uh, sometimes they do. As I found out running a polling booth on Saturday. Um, Now, let's... uh, Just going back to the 19th century, Now, New Zealand often likes to say, well, it introduced uh, voting for women first, which is true in 1893. But who was the first to introduce women as actual candidates in the election? Well, that was Australia. uh, Well, South Australia, I should say. And that was because... Uh, the Conservatives in South Australia, in an attempt to stymie the bill that was going to enfranchise women, introduced an amendment which says not only would women get the vote, but they'd be able to stand for Parliament as well. The Conservatives thought this was such an outrageous proposition, not even the women had asked for it, that the bill would get thrown out. But they miscalculated, and uh, the bill was passed with this amendment. And introduced the, by the Conservatives. Yeah, and the politicians said, oh, well, well fair enough, OK. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, so. it took a while. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, it didn't catch on straight away. What, what uh, year did, uh, were women first allowed to vote in Victoria? Well, yes, that, that's the thing. The, the state and the federal franchises were different. So I think it's about 1907. Yeah. Um, the, Victoria was pretty conservative. So. about. It was the upper house. Bills kept being introduced... Uh, passed in the lower house and then blocked in the upper house. Mm. So it was after Federation, in other yep. words, in 1901. Now, there's, uh, the, the subtitle of your book is How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. Now, it's incredible to read the historical arguments, uh, never mind the ones that are put forward now. And we'll talk about what happened uh, in the 21st century when there was a threat to compulsory voting in Australia. What were the historical arguments, the main arguments, against compulsory voting. Then we'll get to the ones in Well, what's interesting in Australia is that there's hardly any arguments against it. The main arguments were just practical ones. Look, it'll be too hard to enforce. There'll be too many people we've got to follow up. People will be able to make excuses. How are you going to be able to check it? Um, Very few people put arguments about freedom or liberty, um, the freedom to not vote. That really didn't have much purchase. And the other interesting thing is that the electoral officers, the chief electoral officer in, in the at the federal level, they were pushing for it because we already had compulsory registration. It was compulsory for people to be on the roll. The electoral officers put a lot of effort into getting everybody on the roll and they thought that this effort was a bit wasted if these people weren't also obliged to vote. But there wasn't the sense of infringing on the individual's No, Australians didn't seem to worry about Mm. that. 
was, uh, I like how you put it in the book. It was uh, perhaps more a question of an obligation bestowed by the state. So other countries such as the UK and US do go very much for this infringing on individual rights. Yeah. But, of course, what is the downside of that? Well, that they get um, governments that are not elected by the majority, I guess, is the downside. Yeah. Um, and and, and that, that affects the legitimacy of the governments. Um, it means that people who are more marginalised are much less likely to vote uh, because they also don't have compulsory registration. And I think we, we sometimes forget that that's, that, in a sense, it buttresses our compulsory voting. So it's left up to individuals whether they want to participate in the polity. And lots of them never get around to it, whereas here every 18-year-old has to engage at some level, as does every new citizen. And in a country that, that's a, a country of immigrants... I think that's really important for new groups being much more quickly integrated um, into our political system. Uh, a French friend of mine over dinner, she insisted that it wasn't a good idea for us to have compulsory voting, that only people who are passionate about democracy, yeah. but this was at a time uh, when they had to go to a second run of elections in France when an extreme right-wing person almost got into power because, well, only the passionate people got to actually you know, vote at that time. One of the points you make, it's page 178, if I could quote this, and you mentioned it just in your answer then about people on the margins. Without compulsory voting, for example, the Liberal Party would likely have abolished Medicare long ago, relying on the fact that those who need it most were least likely to vote. That's a very good point. What happened in the early noughties as far as was compulsory voting uh, safe in the early noughties? Well, it's been reasonably safe, but there's always been members of the Liberal Party, that Nick Minchin and Eric Abetz, um, who when they get on the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters, try to introduce voluntary voting. But it's a sort of... Not even everybody in the Liberal Party agrees with it. And there was a recommendation put up during John Howard's prime ministership. But Howard said, look, although I agree with you, I would prefer voluntary voting, the Australian people support compulsory voting. So no go. That is, he wasn't going to waste political capital on that. And all of the opinion polls... Um, regularly find that the majority of Australians support compulsory voting. But the, the, just on the other point you made about, about passion, another of the arguments that was put for compulsory voting, which was new to me um, when I did the research, was just this one that it lowers the temperature of the elections because the political parties don't have to sort of whip up enthusiasm in order to get people to the polls. So you don't get, um, you know... Issues, well, like in America, where you get a lot of issues around religion and race and sexuality um, being used to, to motivate people. So the argument that was put as early as the 1860s was you actually don't want your um, government decided by the people who are passionate. You want it decided by people who are a bit more level-headed and sensible. Yeah, that, was a, that came across very clearly in your book. And I'm talking with Professor Judith Brett about her latest book, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. So just on that point, we had a very uh, heated and divisive uh, same-sex marriage survey in 2017. Now, there were members of the coalition government who regarded the... Uh, 100,000 extra voters that came onto the list, they decided that that might have been an own goal by allowing this survey that uh, that might come back to bite them. Is that a, a fair call, an own goal? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of young people 
got on the rolls um, for that for that postal survey, which was not compulsory. And I think one of the things that surprised the coalition was the very high turnout for something that was non-compulsory. They thought that if it was non-compulsory, the highly motivated opponents would vote uh, and that young people wouldn't get their act together. And to some extent, they were, you know, they were wrong on that. Yeah, they, they sure were. Now, we've got to mention in the uh, looking back now on the weekend and the surprise result, and I don't think there's any threat to compulsory voting from it, but uh, I wondered if you could say a few words about uh, what you thought about the outcome in terms of why it was so unexpected. The opinion polls got it wrong. Yeah, well, I don't have a view about the opinion polls, but I do think that what it's a result of is what's often called by political scientists the de-alignment of the electorate. That is, there's a lot fewer people now who've got baked-in political identifications with major parties. It's probably now maybe even the major, you know, like 50% of the electorate or whatever, you know. So that means that campaigning has to change. And what it seems to me we saw was an extremely a targeted marketing campaign with a very good salesman in Scott Morrison that in a way out-campaigned Labor, which had a much more complex um, message to sell, because it seems to me, say on the franking credits, which was actually going to affect a very small number of people by generalising that into a retirement tax, all these people who were not going to be affected at all thought they were, plus um, they would have benefited from many of Labor's policies. So it seems to me that it's to do with this de-alignment. There's just not the same traditional People need a reason to, it's compulsory voting, they need a reason to make a decision. And so a leader or a simple issue is enough because they no longer have an anchoring identification as Liberal or Labor. That's great. Uh, that, that's such a good analysis. Now I've got the final most important question. Did you see the democracy sausage dog race on TV prior to the election? No, I didn't. <laughs> well, I think you might need to investigate that, Professor, because the Liberal dog won. <laughs> okay. So it may be a scientific valid method after all. There you go. Thank you very much. I've been talking with Professor Judith Brett about her book, Democracy so- uh, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Writing. David, back to you. Well, we can choose who we vote for, but not necessarily uh, choose who we encounter in life. So we share our lives and such like, but who do we invite into our domain who come who do we come across there and there are inadvertent discoveries we make in, on such occasions melanie cheng explores the intersection of two unique lives in her novel room for a stranger so melanie welcome back to 3cr thank you so much for having me now there are two lives running parallel in this story and we'll sort of take them separately let's start with margaret hughes or meg house owner spinster she represents a certain way of life yeah so meg hughes is 75 years old she's a pensioner she's spent almost all her life caring for others but now she finds herself alone living alone in her family home and after a rather shocking home invasion she decides to join a home share program in search of some companionship, but also a little bit of security. Security and safety. Yeah. But this brings Andy into her life. Now, here's somebody not just of a different age, but a different culture. Fill us in on a bit about Andy's background here. Yeah, so Andy is 21. He 
has been in Melbourne for a couple of years doing foundation studies in the first year of his biomedical degree. Um, he is really following the expectations of his parents in, in coming to Australia to study and in the type of course he's studying as well. Um, up until now, he's lived alone in his Spencer Street apartment. Um, but again, life happens. His father's business in Hong Kong has collapsed. And while his parents can still just afford the tuition, uh, they can't really afford the rent anymore on his apartment. And so he takes up his aunt's suggestion very reluctantly to join the Home, home Share program. And therefore there's an arrangement there between Meg and Andy. Uh, there's some work that's expected, uh, as you say, the security and such like. But what happens when these two lives sort of meet and there's a sort of suggestion here as he lay in bed Andy found himself wondering about his host she was old probably in her 70s and most likely widowed he assumed the room he was staying in had previously belonged to her daughter it had marks recording a child's growth on the back of the door and the initials HH were scratched into a corner of the bedside table he found it unnerving to be in such a feminine room, and he was an only child. Apart from his mother, a serious woman who rarely wore makeup, he hadn't had much interaction with the opposite sex. So Andy's making assumptions, and these assumptions aren't necessarily correct. That's right. So when Andy first moves in, although they are sharing this very, you know, intimate space of a home, they, for a long time, they live quite separately. So Andy <laughs> goes to his room, he spends hours in his room. There's one point in the book where, you know, Meg says she hasn't seen him in so long, she communicates with him through post-it notes on the fridge. And I think, you know, many of us have lived in home sharing arrangements. I certainly did have shared houses as a student. And you know, that was the, often the situation. You'd be coming and going, doing your own thing, sharing this space, but not really sharing your lives at all. And so that's how they find themselves. Um, and that is a little bit of a barrier. So they just end up creating ideas about each other without any basis but necessarily in reality. This is reflective of the wider community where we do make assumptions. So Meg has friends and basically they immediately say, oh, Andy, Chinese, he's from Hong Kong, studying medicine sort of thing. They, we just naturally jump to conclusions, which yes. is what I think this book is starting it, to address. Very much so. So um, I was recently at the Sydney Writers' Festival. I saw, saw George Saunders speak, and he talks about the elevator test. So he says, imagine you're in an elevator. The doors open. Someone of a certain gender or race or, you know, perhaps what they wear, you know, you, you do have this immediate reaction to them, whether you like it or not, whether you want to admit it or not. We all do this to some degree. Um, and, he, you know, he's talking about challenging those. And in my work as a GP, I feel like I'm very privileged because my assumptions are constantly being challenged. But not everyone necessarily lives a life where they get exposed to people from different backgrounds. Well, if you've lived in the same home for 75 years, yes. uh, as, as Meg has done, you, you can't. And so uh, Andy sort of provides an opportunity to uh, branch out just a little. I mean, it's typified, what you're saying is typified in another character, Patrick, who's mm -hmm. rather condescending and <laughs> in a... I mean, we'll go into Patrick a, a bit more, but he makes a comment at 
a, a dinner which Meg and Andy are present that, well, the British did wonders for Hong Kong by leaving a stable uh, form of government in place, you know, the structure. And he doesn't realise how condescending he is. Yeah, so whilst this is a book of fiction, of course, that particular line was taken from my real life. So I grew up in Hong Kong, and that was something my history teacher at an English school actually said to me in class, that, uh, you know, that Hong Kong and India should be grateful to the British because they established good governance. And, you know, as even as an obedient you know, teacher's pet type student back then, something about what he was saying didn't sit right with me at the time. Well, given that the British can't even govern themselves, <laughs> it seems to me, yes. But I guess with Patrick also, he, you know, he's well-travelled and yet he's not necessarily worldly in his imagination. Well, picking up then on Patrick, he tries to establish a relationship with Meg. And here we have another sort of cultural expectation, can you have a relationship at 75? Can you start a relationship at 75, which is something um, Meg is faced with? Yeah, and um, she even at one point asks Andy, do you think it's crazy for a woman my age to be dating? And, you know, in his mind, Andy thinks, well, yes, it is, but he is very polite and wants to please, so he says no. But, you know, something that I encountered, you know, as a young, you know, junior doctor, going to intergeneral practice and seeing a lot of older patients and you know they do have sex lives and love lives and <laughs> that was something that was challenging my own assumptions yeah. you know and and I think we we all have to do that so there are cultural expectations personal expectations i mean meg comes from the meat and two veg type uh, thinking, yes. which I can identify with my parents and such like. But Patrick's got reasons in many ways for wanting a relationship himself and how he sees his identity. And what we have are lives converging. So Andy is trying to establish a relationship with uh, Kiko um, and Patrick with Meg and such like, but they don't necessarily work out. These things that we hope for, but people are not tuned in to the same degree with each other and and it's almost like how do we put it neutrons passing by mm. and coinciding or not mm. uh, in, in the way lives are led in many ways yeah and that's something that I've seen again in my practice people who are you know really craving human connection but really are quite fearful of it at the same time. And even Meg says that she thinks sometimes perhaps what people fear most is what they crave Good most point. in the world. And, yeah, and I think we see that playing out in both Meg and Andy's lives. Mm. Now, we also have to introduce another character here, Atticus. <laughs> Atticus. Who is Atticus? What is Atticus? How is Atticus? So Atticus is um, Meg's... A pet African grey parrot, um, and he can talk quite a lot. Um, and yeah. <laughs> I, I have a fascination with talking birds because one of my best friends at high school in Hong Kong had an African grey parrot as a pet, and yeah, I took to her. Her name was Cindy, and she would sing our favourite TV theme songs and yeah, interject regularly. How symbolic are you wanting? Atticus to be? What does Atticus represent? Well, I think, you know, talking parrots are mimics, they're mirrors. 
And in the same way that a toddler might, you know, they draw our attention to the moments of hypocrisy and absurdity in our lives. But also a caged bird was another symbol I wanted to explore because, you know, Meg and Andy are very much living in these metaphorical cages that they've created for themselves. As I said, they want to reach out, they want to be free, they want to explore things, but their fear prevents them from doing that. So, yes, the bird has that representation. Even the name, I think, is significant because most students in Australia at some stage have encountered um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. So you wouldn't need to ask uh, where the name Atticus came from, but that's not necessarily the case in other parts of the world. Well, yeah, exactly. So Andy has no idea. He asks, what does Atticus mean? And Meg kind of responds with, oh, it's from the book, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird. And Andy says, well, is is he a mockingbird? He, like, he doesn't understand that cultural reference yeah. at all. So, so it's this cultural expectation, the background that we simply assume is mm. in place. Yeah. But in a global community, it isn't uh, always so. You've also got another contrast here. I mean, um, between looking forward and looking back, past and future, what might have been and what will happen. And Meg is basically... Uh, is regret too strong a word or...? Uh, I think there's some regret there, yeah. To looking back on her life yeah. and Andy's expectation of the future and and how these lives, yeah. Yeah, I loved playing with the symmetry of that. Um, Meg is very much in this phase where she's reflecting on her life and the missed opportunities and perhaps even more so now seeing Andy in her life and seeing that he does have his future ahead of him makes her even more more reflective. Um, but Meg and Andy are similar in that they, well, Meg has lived her life, you know, caring for others, pleasing others, putting other people's concerns ahead of her own. And Andy is doing a similar thing. He's trying to, you know, live for his parents' expectations of him and their aspirations. And therefore, can we ever lead a fulfilling life? When we get to the end of our lives, do we look back and think, well, I didn't have that opportunity? Or how do we shape our lives? How much, well... It gets to the ending of the novel in many ways. Yeah, uh, so I guess with, with Meg, for instance, you know, on if she was to go to a dinner party, you know, the usual questions that people ask, what do you do? Are you married? Do you have children? She, she can't participate in those kind of markers of success. And what I wanted to do with the book is, well, what makes a life? You know, are those the things that actually make a meaningful life or Because not? Meg has led a different life. She has mm. had an affair and things like that, which aren't necessarily socially acceptable. Yes. But uh, still, it's part of her life story, yeah. so to speak, and who she is. So is it any less meaningful if it doesn't conform to the cultural and social expectation. Exactly, because Meg is um, loosely based on an aunt of mine, my favourite aunt, who also found herself in the role of carer age 16, devoted her entire life to caring for my mum's family, and then later on my grandpa until he passed away. She didn't marry, she didn't have her own family, um, and yet, you know, I was you know, moved by her level of sacrifice, and of course her life has meaning. She you know, raised this family, she cared for someone. Um, I mean, that that kind of w 
work is so important and such a contributor to society. It's essential in any family, in any society. Just to end off the interview, you sum up the sort of argument, if I can put it that way, when Andy's on a plane heading back to Hong Kong. Just then, the plane hit some turbulence and Andy's father woke up in a fright. The seatbelt sign flashed on with a melodic ding. The flight attendants took their seats. Somebody started praying, alone, steady beat amid the tremulous din. Andy was not religious. He'd told Mrs Hughes the truth at the cafe, but the truth was no comfort to him. He'd spent the past few years studying the human body, the astonishing way it worked, the thousands of horrific ways it could fail, the names of all the invisible organisms that could invade and destroy it. Andy had once confused such knowledge with power, with control, but now he knew it provided neither. So are we on a quest um, to, you know, take control, but, you know, it's inevitably impossible? Well, Andy's revelation to some degree is my revelation through now working for quite a few years in medicine and understanding the kind of randomness of illness and life and death and um, you know it's forced me to just focus on the now and the present and being grateful for what we have. Which in many ways is the message without giving anything away about what (laughs) happens to these two lives is the message of the book. Now we're going to have to dash out of here ruminations is coming in so many thanks uh, Melanie for coming in today Melanie Cheng, Room for a Stranger is the novel and it was by Text Publishing. Ewan, you had? Judith Brett's new book, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting, published by 